0: The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, and in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord.
0: If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been in the sermon series called Recalibrate. Uh, What we're doing in the series, we're, we're... Diving into the things that make Sacred City kind of unique, or even more specifically, these last two weeks, these next two weeks, are diving into the identity that we receive in the gospel, right? God saves us. He gives us a new identity. We become a new creation and what that means. And so because of the gospel, we have seen the last two weeks that we are made family, that God has chosen us. He adopted us. He brought us into his family, that God is now our heavenly father, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, that we live in this family together together. Uh, last week we saw that we're not just a family, but a family of missionaries, that God calls us in to send us back out as his ambassadors in the world to show people what Jesus is like. Uh, and this week we're going to be diving into the third piece of our identity as a family of missionary servants who are learners. Uh, and so we're going to dive into this piece about servants, right? What it means to have an identity as servants. Now the idea of being a servant isn't something that our culture promotes. Uh, in fact, our our culture tends to gravitate towards the opposite. Uh, I, when when we come together and we think through these identities, right? Culture at large is relatively accepting or. With conditions of our identity as family, right? Culture likes to belong to something, to be together. We like to to have a mission, to be about something. Uh, We love to learn as a culture, right? That's why we have colleges and schools and education is really meaningful in our culture. But this piece of our gospel identity is specifically countercultural, Uh, We would rather be on the the receiving end of being served than to identify as a servant. And this is really the reason why the restaurant, the food industry is such a big deal. We like to just show up, have somebody else prepare a meal. They do the dishes, right? We just pay and jet out. This is why maid services are a thing. Lawn services, all these little services that people provide that step in and do the stuff that we don't necessarily want to do ourselves. We would rather be served, And underneath what we reason as convenience, because those things are definitely conveniences, are they not? Uh, What we reason as convenience, underneath of it, there is a profoundly spiritual reality at play. See, underneath these conveniences is a hunger within your soul for greatness. It's like my nagging craving for pizza that happens all the time. It's there every day, every moment, constantly telling you, you gotta be great. Now, a lot of times, this greatness sort of stays low-key, right? It doesn't always come out, right? I can't always eat pizza, but there's always that desire there. Uh, uh, and so there's a sense that this, this desire for greatness is always there. Sometimes it's under the radar. Uh, and, and, and even more so, it can be masked in subtleness, right? Uh, it's not so much this sharp hunger pain. It's this dull, constant hunger that we have to be fed and to become great. Now, when, when I say this, I realize that, say, greatness, there's usually these... Um, ideas that come to mind, right? When we talk about the greats, we think of people like Michael Jordan and Meryl Streep. We think of uh, Muhammad Ali, who says, I'm the greatest who ever lived. We think of Babe Ruth, John Coltrane, Rosa Parks. We think of people who have done incredible things that have left their mark on our culture. Now, if this is our definition of greatness, it doesn't seem very relatable, right? Not a lot of us are gonna be the next John Coltrane. Not many of us are gonna become the next Rosa Parks. There's... I'm just going to say, we're kind of ordinary people, right? You live in the Midwest, it's kind of what the deal is. You're just kind of ordinary, which is fine, absolutely fine. And so when we think about greatness in terms of achievements, we, it's easy to kind of separate ourselves and say, you know, I, I, that's not really what I'm after. But when we think of greatness in normal terms, right, in, in everyday desires that we have, think of a greatness like this, to be esteemed. To be valued, to be prized, to be notable, to be noteworthy, to be sort of set apart. Not only in your own eyes, because if it's only you who thinks of yourself this way, what doesn't matter? But even more so, to be viewed this way by others. See, when we change the definition of greatness, this makes it a lot more relatable, right? We all have this desire to be known for something. And Greg uh, Henriquez, who's a a psychologist, he says, at the, the central core of human need is the need an individual has to be known and valued by himself or herself and important others. This is... This is greatness language, right? To be known and valued. That is what it means to be great. And so this this desire that we have to be great is not only an internal thing that we feel, but but we need external sources to validate greatness. See, this is why the catch with greatness is that there always has to be external validation in order to, to solidify what we think of ourselves to be great. Now, most of the time the voices that are most influential in our greatness are our parents, right? They, they, either, they either support that or they are a, a critiquing voice against that, right? If you have a nagging mom or dad who's always been critical of you, you've never been able to live up to the standard, you've never been able to really, you're just viewed as an inconvenience, right? That, is, that says something about your value, your greatness. And the other side, if you have parents who are incredibly supportive, they, they, they you know, push you up, right? They become your biggest fan, Right? That's saying something to your value and your greatness. And what happens as we get older, sometimes we lose those voices. Either they become less prominent or, or maybe they pass away. And we're left searching for new voices to support this concept that we have about being great. Now the problem with this, it puts us in a pretty vulnerable and pretty naive position. Because to to pursue greatness in this sense means that we are completely dependent on the view of other people. That our our value, our dignity, our worth fluctuates with the opinions of others. And so what this creates in us is this short-sightedness. There's this sense that I can't see past myself. I can't see others. And so I I have to do what I can to to, to heap up, to solidify my self-image and create what eventually will become an unhealthy ego. See, when we do this, it's impossible to actually love people in this way because we're using people to advance our own agenda, right? Because it, it's all about me, right? I'm baiting people for affirmation and acknowledgement and support and validation. Right, I'm just using them as a cog in my, my wheel. And Tim Keller says that the condition of the human ego is, is a lot like this, that it's this constantly feeding thing. He says that it's empty. Human ego is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. Right. Human ego is pretty volatile. And because of its emptiness and fragility, we are always consumed with filling it up. Right? And the way that this happens is through the opinions of others, the way other people view us. Now, there's some people you know that, like, you just know, like, that person's always striving for attention, right? You can probably identify people. Like, they're, they're sort of, uh, they like the spotlight. But not all of us are like this. We find different ways. This is masked in other ways. I personally, I'm not that person. I don't really like the spotlight. Uh, What I would rather do in my sinfulness is steal something away from other people, right? I'd rather take them down a peg and by taking them down a peg, I, I somehow assert myself as superior in a way. Right, maybe you can relate to that. You just have this constantly critical spirit trying to downplay and diminish others. Now, the, the deal with this is that both approaches to this uh, hunger for glory or, or stepping into this glory hunger is that both approaches have the same goal, right? Both approaches have this desire to set yourself apart, to make yourself great, to make yourself notable, to make yourself valuable and, and, and to be acknowledged. And maybe some of you are sitting there is like, you know what, I just don't do any of that. You think you don't do it, but but if you're thinking this way, you're actually doing it right now because in that effort you're setting yourself apart. See, this is how subtle and toxic that this hunger for greatness can be. Right? We'll do anything to set ourselves apart. But the reality is this is nothing new. This is nothing new. This has been around for since the fall, right? You think of the Tower of Babel. Not long after the Garden of Eden, everybody's trying to do stuff to show how good they are. And in fact, the scene that we see today um, in the pages of Mark chapter 10, if you want to open your Bible to Mark chapter 10, that's where we're going to be camping out all day. That's on page um, 494, I think. Where is it? 494 in your Pew Bible. I'm trying to find it in mine. There we go. Mark chapter 10. Uh, we see the same thing, this this greatness hunger playing out in the lives of Jesus' disciple. But what we see in in chapter 10 isn't the first time this has been identified, okay? Just just know that. This isn't the first time that this thing has been exposed. If you go back to chapter 9 in Mark's gospel, Jesus is is doing whatever he does, and his disciples are kind of huddled up, and, and they're all talking to each other, and here they are bickering about who is the greatest, Right? Everybody, here's why I'm great. Let me tell you ABC. And they're asserting their greatness. And Jesus walks over. He's like, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? And they all kind of look down at their feet and just say, uh, you know, nothing. I'm not talking about anything. No need. But then here in chapter 10, we see, we see the disciples sort of get over this shame that maybe they felt the first time where we see two brothers approach Jesus and they are going to ask with reckless abandon about what they've been wanting from Jesus all along. Take a look at Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, now, sorry, just before I get to that, just, just know, like, just a little bit of context. John and James, okay, brothers, but these two dudes have been in Jesus' fight club, okay, at Sacred City we have our missional communities, which a group of 12, 20 people get together, live life together, and then we have these fight clubs that happen inside of it. A like, group of three or four men or three or four women that get together for intimate times of discipleship, growing together, accountability, things of this nature. James and John, along with Peter and Jesus, are a fight club. So these guys have had some intimate times with Jesus. They've seen a side of Jesus that maybe some of the disciples haven't seen before. And so they have this special access to Jesus, but still they have this question for Jesus and they want to make sure that they get a yes from this question. And so they preface the question with this. Keep going in verse 35. he says, They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is absurd, right? This is like my, my, I've got a three-year-old son. He always comes to me and say, says, Dad, I got a question. He always kind of like, that's how he always enters. Dad, I got a question for you. And it would be a lot like my son coming in and say, Dad, I got a question for you. But whatever I ask, you need to say yes to. Right? Whatever I'm about to ask you, you got to say yes. Okay? Can you can you agree to that? So I can ask you this. Right? If you're a good parent, the bare minimum is to not say yes to everything. Right? Bare minimum. And Jesus sees this. He sees sort of the stench of the uh, stench of entitlement. Um, he sees what's going on here. And, and, and you can kind of see it yourself probably. You can identify. These guys seem like they, they feel like they deserve something from Jesus. Right? Maybe they've got some ulterior motives as to why they're following Jesus, um, and, and they want to make sure they get what they want from him. And I don't, know, I don't know entirely what their rationale is. The scriptures doesn't tell it to us directly, but if I had a guess, here, here would be my guess. That these guys have been following Jesus for the last three years. I mean, not just like, They've left everything. They left their homes, their families. They left their friends. They left their livelihood. They've been on the road, constantly traveling with Jesus, serving in various ways, feeding thousands of people, doing miracles. They've been just, they gave up everything. And now they're here at the point where they're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry and his life, and they're saying, you know what? We have got to get some recognition here. We want to be recognized for everything that we've given up. Now, Jesus can kind of see through this, and rather than shutting down the conversation right here where it's at, he, he, he entertains their question. Now, this doesn't mean, Jesus doesn't say yes to this. He doesn't say, like, all right, you, you can ask me whatever you want. I'm going to say yes. He doesn't do that because Jesus can't be bribed. Jesus, Jesus can't be leveraged to get something else. Like, we come to Jesus for Jesus. There is nothing beyond it. It's not that we don't come to Jesus for health, wealth, and prosperity. We come to Jesus for Jesus, And so Jesus entertains this. In fact, Jesus lets the ugly come out of his disciples. And he uses it as a teaching moment. Now let me just just take an aside here, because this is something that's helpful for us to understand. Like Jesus made space for the ugly of people to come out. And so what this means in missional community, when we're sitting around the living room together and somebody starts sharing something, and maybe it's like, whoa, that's heavy. Right? Oh man, that's obviously sinful, Right? We don't shut it down and say, you know what, you need to get a hold of yourself. You need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You need to cover this up and pretend like you didn't say any of this. No, that's not a discipleship culture. See, Jesus created space for the ugly to come out, and so do we. Because when the ugly is exposed, right, when the need, when the vulnerability, when the weakness is exposed, that's where the gospel puts its seed in. Right? That's where gospel growth happens when we're met exactly where we're at, and Jesus hears us out, and He offers us something so sweet and nourishing for us. See, that's how the gospel works. It takes what's broken and restores it from the inside out. And so, without agreeing to the terms of disciples, Jesus takes their question here in verse thirty-five or thirty-six. Excuse me. He says, and He said to them. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Now if you jump down to verse 41, you can see that James and John aren't the only disciples that are really wanting to sit in prestigious places. Because if you go to verse 41, you see, and when the ten, the other ten of the disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. See, they're upset that James and John are asking these questions. They're not upset because, you know, how dare you ask Jesus for something like that. They're upset, they're jealous because they didn't ask Jesus first. Right, they're wanting the same place that that these guys are asking for. And Jesus responds to this request here in verse 38 and 39. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Right? They said, yeah, we can do it. Now it's very clear here by Jesus' initial response that, that he and his disciples are in two different wavelengths. There's a misunderstanding at play here. See, the disciples' view of what they're asking for is, is short-sighted. They, they have no clue what's going on in the larger picture of things And so they think, they're thinking in terms of political kingdom advancement. They're thinking that Jesus is here on earth to restore political authority to Israel. Now just a little bit of context here. At this point, God's people, God's chosen people who are supposed to be uh, blessed to be a blessing to the world, who are supposed to be a city on a hill to show what God is like, the people who are to be ruled by God, that God is their king, that there is no worldly king. These people are currently under Roman rule, specifically of Caesar. Caesar, Roman rule has spread out. It's become the most powerful uh, nation in the world at this point. And and everything is under Roman rule. They're using Roman currency. They're under Roman laws and taxation, right? Everything that they're abiding by, all of the societal structure is influenced by Roman rule. And as God's people, this is upsetting, right? They're supposed to be God's people. And so throughout scripture, they've been promised that there would be a Messiah, a Christ, right, who will come and he'll set up God's kingdom. And they finally, as you look through the gospels, they're starting to realize that Jesus is this Christ, right? Jesus is the Messiah that's come to set up God's kingdom. See, but they were thinking that God's kingdom comes in terms of political liberation. They're thinking that Jesus has come to overthrow Roman rule and to set himself up as the new king of Israel. It means that, that when the disciples are asking Jesus to sit with him in glory, they're not talking about heaven here, right? I think we read that and we think, oh, this glory must be talking about heaven. They're not talking about heaven. They're talking about the glory of being in the king's chambers, right? To be an advisor to the king of Israel so narrow narrowly focused here now this is why right thinking in terms of political kingdom overturned israel restored a new kingdom this is why they think that they can drink the cup that jesus will drink and share the same baptism right because they're thinking in terms of yeah we'll fight with jesus we'll stay loyal to jesus This is all allegorical to them, right? It's it's not like a real cup or a real baptism. It's like, will you stick with Jesus? And they're like, yeah, of course. We can do that. We've been here all along. We'll stick with you from here on out. But the cup that Jesus is talking about is not a cup of victory that a king would raise up after he triumphs. The cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out upon himself. The baptism that Jesus is talking about is not this uh, anointedness of of greatness. The the baptism that Jesus is talking about is plunging down into death to be brought back up again through resurrection. It's a huge misunderstanding here. But even with this misunderstanding, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you can't do this. In fact, he says, no, you don't realize what you're saying, but you will associate with me through the cup and through baptism. But it's going to mean something completely different. He goes on with verse 39. Uh, And he said to them, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And now here is the turning point where things are very clear. That Jesus and his disciples are on two very different pages. Jesus says, the person who sits at my right and at my left are not mine to a point. He goes on, verse 40. He says, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for the for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, in a worldly kingdom, the king gets to decide who is in his cabinet, right? The king gets to decide who his advisors are, who sits as right, who sits as left. But here Jesus makes it clear that he's not setting up another worldly kingdom, he's setting up the kingdom of God. And because the kingdom is not a worldly kingdom, his rule or his his authority does not extend to who he sets right or left of him. It's up to God who has been prepared for those places. It It was Jesus who taught us how to pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is saying that God's kingdom is coming down from heaven and is invading earth. And though Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, God is the one who appoints, who prepares people for those places, that it is God's kingdom. Now Jesus begins to show them how the kingdom of God is vastly different than any other human institution that's been set up. Over the next four verses, we'll see why the kingdom of God is known as the upside-down kingdom. Honestly, from a worldly perspective, this doesn't make any sense to us. And so Jesus begins by comparing uh, uh, Roman rule and, and what the kingdom of God is like. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called to them, he's bringing his disciples, and he's saying to them, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles, right, that's the Romans, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, Jesus is identifying, see, in, in, in Roman rule or earthly kingdoms, those who are at the top rule with an iron fist. They take authority and they use it to their advantage. And Jesus says to that, not in my kingdom, verse 43, he goes on, he says, but it shall not be so among you, whoever Would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. See, Jesus identifies drastic changes in the kingdom of God, and in doing so, he completely redefines what greatness is. See, greatness in the kingdom of God isn't measured by who serves you, it's not measured by who serves your agenda or who's underneath you supporting you. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by who you serve. And Jesus tells us in the kingdom of God to put yourself last in line is the way that you become first. To look at the needs of everybody else around you first and then care for yourself. That's what it's like to be great. See, and this is is how upside down the kingdom of God is. Because in a worldly sense, that's not how it works. Right? Top dog. He's the one who's great. The one who pushed people down so he can advance. That's what greatness looks like. But not so in the kingdom of God. He says, it's the meek who inherit the earth. Now this moment right here, Jesus with his disciples, this is identity shaping. Right? This, is, this is no small piece of scripture. This is profoundly uh, influential on how we see ourselves as Christians. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you occasionally serve. A little here, a little there. To be a Christian means that you identify yourself as a lifelong servant. That in all of life, that you are there to serve others. This means that every time you step in a room, you can ask yourself, who has God put me here to serve? What does he have me here to do? That's what it means to be a servant. To have an identity as a servant. Now this is pretty profound, I think. Um, In a program-driven church, right, one that has all these um, workshops and programs and this and that to really help you like lean into some of the stuff that obviously God calls us to do. uh, Someone else here has thought through the logistics, Right. Someone else has planned what you're going to do from this time to this time. We're going to be here. This is who we're serving. This is what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Right. All you have to do is sign up and show up. And for this next four hours, I'm going to serve somebody. Now I'm not knocking being organized by any means, because in order to effectively do this as missional communities, to have a people and a place to bless and to serve throughout the week, throughout the month, uh, we need to have some sort of organization. So type A people, don't, don't, you know, don't shut in on yourself just yet. We need you. Uh, But to rely upon programs and other people to to really help you be a servant is counterproductive to what it means to, to one, listen to the spirit of God who's telling you how to live, how to step into the needs of others. And it's hampering you from living in your identity as a servant of God's kingdom. This allows us to compartmentalize, right? That in this little portion of my life, I'm a servant. But, but for the rest of my life, I don't really have to think about that. That's, that's counterintuitive to our gospel identity. See, if we are to identify as servants, as servants, the question is, who do we serve and how do we serve them? In what ways? Now, the first part of this question is answered pretty clearly in this passage. He, he, there's two groups of people. He says, those among you, as he's talking to his disciples, right? The brothers and sisters in Christ that are among you, right? That's your missional community family, your church family. And he goes, oh, yeah, and everybody else who's outside of that. Like, that's, that's some pretty inclusive language to who you serve, right? It's not just the people that I like in my missional community. Right? I'm here to be a servant of all. And what do you think it would be? Well, what, what do you think the impact our church would have on the city, right? If we were known for that? If we were known as people who are willing to step into the mess of others, help them to do whatever, you know, the stuff that they don't want to do. Really, that's what servants are there for, right? To do stuff that other people don't want to do. What would, what would we be known for as a church if that's what we stepped into in our city? It means that we're intentionally serving. To be a servant of God means we're intentionally serving those that we love and we like, and those who Jesus loves and likes when our love and our like fails. It's not preferential. There's a perfect story of this uh, that Jesus tells of the good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans are are arch rivals. They don't like each other. They don't get along. And there's this man who's beaten up. He's laid on the side of the road, left for dead. He's a Jewish man. and, and, And Jewish leaders walk by him and do nothing about it. They've got their holy things to tend to that they're, they're not willing to take care of this man who really needs their help. Yet here comes this Samaritan man who, by all senses of, of the word, is enemies with this man who's beaten up. But, but the Samaritan man walks by, he stops, he picks him up, he puts him on his donkey, probably, and, and takes him to an end where he can be cared for. Right. He pays for this man to be made well with his own coin. It's sacrificial love and service to those that he would naturally relate to. So it's everybody, servants of all. But the question is how? How do we serve people, right? How do we step into that? What are the things that we actually do? Now, to be a servant means that you don't wait to be asked to help, right? You just, you identify a need and you step into it. You take it upon yourself. I'm here to serve. Here's a need that I see. I can step into that. But this means, in order to do this effectively, it means that we need to listen and pay attention to the needs that others around us have. I think one of the things that we always mess up with a little bit is, is we look in and we see, oh, this is what this person needs, or at least this is what I perceive this person to need. Right, when all along they're speaking and they're, they're needing something completely different, that we actually are counterproductive in, in meeting this need that we think they need, but that's not actually what they really need. Does that make sense? That's kind of confusing. So we need to listen and pay attention so we can recognize needs and graciously and kindly step into them with humility. I think our culture is tired of being served by Christians who have it all together. Right? Even when, when we're people who put off this vibe of we've got our life together and maybe God has definitely blessed us and been gracious in dealing with us, but when we assert I'm better than you so I'm gonna help you out, that is repulsive to the people who need our help. See, to be a servant, to be servant-hearted means that you are being gracious and kind. You're always looking for ways to put others' needs before your own. So let me just get real practical here for a minute. Right? What would it look like to be a servant to those who are among you? Right? Start with our family, our church family. Husbands, what would it look like to serve your wife? It means to provide for your family. Right, hold down a good job. Work hard. Come home right after working a long day and do the dishes. Right, come home and serve your wife. You, obviously, you've worked a long day, but if your wife is at home with the kids, man, she's had it rougher than you have. I promise you that. Come home and, and, and find ways to serve your wife. Maybe it's the dishes, maybe it's something else, right? Scoop the snow or whatever. Find ways to serve, right? Dads, serve your family, serve your kids by helping them with homework. Right, change a diaper. Give mom an hour or something, to get away, get some rest. That's one way you can serve your family. See, when we think about serving people, a lot of times we think of the, the physical needs that are up front, it's really helpful, right? Obviously, those are tangible expressions of care and love and concern and servanthood for people. But really, if we look at, at marriage and, and fatherhood or, or any of these relationship dynamics, more than a physical need to step into stuff and to serve in a physical sense, there's a need to be spiritual servants. Right, caring for the needs of others in a spiritual sense. Right, when Paul is talking about uh, marriage, husbands, and how they love uh, their wives, he says to wash them with the water of the word. Right, to care for them spiritually. Serve their needs. What they, what they have. So this means that we need to, to be a good listener. Identifying gospel snacks. Places where they're not believing the gospel. Right? And not to condemn them or or to 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 make them feel bad about maybe how they're living in, in their former identity, but an opportunity as an opportunity to step in and to speak truth over them, to assure them of their identity in Christ. Right. Here's here's a real practical. I think a lot of us have young families, and and so moms they are there's always this like. Instagram version of what motherhood looks like, right? Everything's clean, the house is nice, kids are all organized, you don't ever need to wipe their faces, all this stuff, right? You don't need to clean up your floor. There's this clean and cut, and and there's sort of this identity, or this sort of standard that mothers live up to that they have to step into in order to be a good mom, and and so then, when they don't meet those standards, they always feel condemned. I'm not feeling, I'm not a good mom. Right? Emotional meltdown, There's usually a lot of emotions mixed into this. Husbands, that's an opportunity to preach the gospel to your wife. That's an opportunity to say, hey, your identity doesn't rest in what you do. It rests in Christ. To remind them of who they are in Christ is a far better way to serve them than doing the dishes, really. That's life-giving. What about moms, wives? Wives... One of the best ways to serve your husband, if you see them serving you in this capacity, right, laying down their lives, is to bless them with affirming words. It sounds so simple, right? But to affirm them, honey, I see the sacrifices you're making for our family, and I want you to know that I appreciate them. That's a way to serve your husband. Find ways to support him. Right? If, he's, if he's really doing what he sh- should be doing and stepping into the, the heavy burden of being a, a father and a, and a husband, right, support him in that work. Now, he's going to mess up, right? The, he's going to fail you. There's going to be things that fall through the cracks. But one of the ways to serve your husband is when you see these things falling through the cracks, don't condemn him like you should have done this. You should have taken out of the trash. You should have done whatever. See what's falling through the cracks. And if you have the bandwidth, step into that and serve him. I take out the trash if you forgot to do it. Now, moms, I feel like I don't even need to say anything because motherhood is like a crash course in servanthood. It's synonymous. To be, to be a mom is to, to be a servant, right? Because your kids' needs are constantly being before you. So honestly, right, just live in that. That's how you serve your family. Kids, serve your parents by quick obedience the first time. Amen, right? Uh. Quick obedience the first time. Be honest. Right? That's a way to serve your, your parents. Right? If your parents have a gospel worldview, they should not be shocked by anything you tell them. Right? Because if they understand the gospel, they know that they themselves are more sinful than they ever thought, so that there's this reality that my child can be more sinful than ever thought. And so if, if we're creating a gospel culture within our homes, there should be this freedom to come to your mom and dad to confess, right? Parents, we need, to, we need to create that kind of a culture. And kids, step into that, right? If your parents are doing that, be honest. Do chores. Take a shower for Pete's sake. Right? No offense, Peter. Sorry, buddy. I did not have you in mind when I put that down on my sheet, so... See, don't just do stuff, right? The way you do stuff matters a lot of times way more than what you actually do, right? To step into something and be servant-hearted, to step into something with compassion and care for somebody else, that is a big deal, right? Now, how does this transition to our church family? Right? We want to bless and affirm with words. We want to find uh, ways to support people. If somebody has needs, right, if they need their yard mode or, or whatever it is, car worked on, we step into that. We, maybe we have to give money to help them out. We step into that. Someone's between jobs. We help them find a new job. We use the resources that we have, our car, our money, our time, the know-how to help somebody out. Make meals for people. But again, the most pressing needs that we all have are spiritual needs. How do we serve others in our missional community family, right? We speak truth and love to them. You're not doing anybody a favor if you're pretending like issues don't exist. Right? A servant steps into the mess. That's how we love people. We provide the gospel, provide time, And safety, right? And when we do that, we create a gospel culture where people have the freedom to open up and to be themselves, admit their weakness and failures, and then receive the good news of the gospel. And in that, that's how people change. And to create that kind of culture, we are serving people. And to do that, honestly, this gives people a taste of what the kingdom of God is like. Now, this changes how you go to school. This changes how you work. This changes the neighborhoods that you live in because you are there to serve. Right? It's not just about getting a good grade or a paycheck. You, God has placed you there to serve. And a lot of times, servanthood is going to go beyond your job description. Right, Chick-fil-A is like one of the best places. Their chicken's the bomb. But the, the culture that they create at Chick-fil-A is great because everybody's so willing to step into your, your needs and help you out. Right. What would it look like if your workplace looked more like Chick-fil-A? Right. You're just making the extra effort to serve somebody. Bless them. Right. Maybe you're in a work environment where birthdays aren't celebrated. One way you can serve people, throw a party. Affirm people, right? Everybody should be, in the kingdom of God, everyone is celebrated. In the kingdom of God, people are affirmed, not in what they accomplish, but who they are, their identity rooted in Christ. Write a note, give a gift, find tangible ways to bless somebody, clean up trash when you're out on your walk in your neighborhood. Find the stuff that nobody wants to do, the stuff that's falling through the cracks, and step into those. That's what it looks like to be a servant. Now, to lay all this out can be quite overwhelming, right? It just sounds like i got to do, 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 do. I got lots of stuff to do. I can all do all day long. I could find stuff to do. But to live as servant means that we are being sacrificial. It means that we're giving our time away for something, right? If we're serving, it means we're taking away time from sitting on our comfy couch watching Netflix. Or if we're stepping into our identity as servants, it means that our budget might be tr- trimming up a little bit, right? So we have more resources to help other people. It might, mean, it might mean turning down like the big game in order to help somebody plunge their toilet. Right? To be a servant requires sacrifice. But here's the thing, that Jesus never calls us to do something that he himself has not done first for us. See, in the gospel, we see that Jesus is the ultimate servant. And verse 45 shows us t- to what extent here. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus, when he called this title, the Son of Man, Matthew uses it all throughout the gospel, uh, his gospel account. The Son of Man, that's a nod back to Jesus. To, uh, Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this uh, apocalyptic vision of the son of man who comes and he reigns. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people worships and falls under the reign of this one person. This son of man. This, in shorthand, the king of the universe. See, Jesus here is saying, I am the king of the universe. And unlike other kings that come to be served, I come to serve Philippians 2, 6 through 7 shows us just the uh, intensity of this, that though Jesus was in the form of God, that he was with the highest of highs, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. See, Jesus didn't come as an elite, right? Jesus didn't just come as a human and come as an elite, and now he's like in the king's household. Jesus came to the world as the son of a poor carpenter, born in a manger. It does not get lower than that. See, Jesus owned humility all of his life. In a big defining moment of Jesus' ministry, he's sitting at the table with his disciples, waiting to celebrate what would be Jesus' last Passover with them. And and the disciples are there sitting at the table. Uh, their, Their feet are dirty, and those times there's no sidewalks. It's all just dirt roads and whatnot. They're sitting there, and what's the tradition is that there's a servant in the household that will come and wash the feet. Disciples are there. Their feet stink. Animals are in the road, so it's not just dirt. There's other particles. It's a miserable job. It's literally the worst job that someone in the household can have. And they're sitting there at the table waiting for somebody to come and and clean off their feet. And you know what happens? They're looking at each other like, I'm not going to do it. That's No, I'm not going to do it. Jesus gets down on his hands and knees, takes a basin of water, and starts washing all of his disciples' feet. Right? The picture of the kingdom of God. Right? The king down on his knees serving peasants. See, but Jesus didn't just come for feet washing. See, that's, that's pointing to something even better. See, Jesus came to earth to overthrow a kingdom and to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, contrary to what the, the Jews believe, he's not here to overthrow Roman, Roman rule. right? He's not here to, to, to sort of topple over Caesar. It's not a political revolution. Jesus comes to liberate God's people from the rule of sin. Jesus came to overturn the kingdom of darkness, to dethrone the tyrant of And like I said, this is not Caesar. Sin is the captor and tyrant and enslaver of us. See, it's sin that enslaves you. It keeps you tied down. It abuses you. It steals life from you. Sin wants to keep you in the dark, right? It wants to keep you in the dark. It wants to, to manipulate you with like puppet strings from the shadows, Wants you to keep yourself self-occupied, keep you short-sighted. It wants you to to be uh, invested in your own kingdom. It wants you to rebel against God. Now, when there is war in our country and most countries, a president or the general isn't on the front lines, right? They sit back at the White House, they sort of like, you know, run people around the whiteboard. They're sending lower-ranking soldiers to do their bidding, to go do the dirty work. And when those soldiers, some of them will inevitably perish, right? They'll die on the battlefield. And in that moment, that's the ultimate sacrifice, right? To, to, to lay down your life for someone else. But here's the deal. When God goes to war with sin, when he goes to overthrow the kingdom of darkness, he doesn't send an infantry. He sends his son. The king of the universe comes down off his throne and onto the battlefield. See, and this war is not against flesh and blood. This is not a war against Caesar. This is a war against the spirits and principalities of darkness. And so this is a war that can only be fought in a spiritual way, and that is where Jesus goes to the cross and he gives his life, as what we're told here in verse 45, as a ransom for many. Now this this idea of ransom, it's this idea of being bought back from something, right? You think of like, you know, kidnapping situation. You, you pay a ransom to get whoever's kidnapped back. This is the same sort of mentality here, that sin has captive, made us captives. And so by Jesus going to the cross and paying, drinking the wrath of God, the cup that God had prepared for him, by, by plunging into the baptism of death, this is how Jesus defeats the powers of sin. Jesus... Buys us back, purchases us for our own kingdom. Now this reminds me. I'm wrapping up here. I know I'm. I get so excited about this stuff. And I here's what I t- I've been cutting down my short sermons for like the last three months. And, and no matter how much I cut out of my sermons, I'm always preaching for like 50 minutes because I get so hyped up about it. But I, I got Narnia. Okay. <laughs> Narnia gives us a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. If you know the story uh, of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, I hope I don't ruin this for you. Uh, It's been around for a while, so. (laughs) The white witch. She's been ruling Narnia for a hundred years with a cold iron fist with no end in sight. C.S. Lewis, when he's writing, he says, Under her rule, it's always winter and never Christmas. It's always cold, it's always snowy, but there's no real joy that happens under her rule. People in Narnia, the the creatures in Narnia are scared of her. Many of them have been turned to stone because she looked at them, doesn't like them. Boom, you're turned to stone, I'm done away with you. If you don't fall in line with what she wants from you, boom, you're out of my sight. For years and years and years, tyranny under her rule. That until Aslan the rightful king of Narnia comes onto the scene. He hears the cries and the groanings of the people. He knows their pain and the sorrow of what it's like to be oppressed by such a cruel ruler. And in the ultimate gesture of servanthood, he lays down his own life, that he is self-sacrificing to liberate the others in Narnia. And by this, effort by laying down his life what happens is he takes back the throne that that he's actually restored to life and in his rule and his reign all things are set right. Narnia the snow melts greenery comes up it's a joy to live in Narnia once again he's setting all things wrong right. Now this is exactly what Jesus does for us in the gospel. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness. We've been taken from the captivity of the white witch. We've been transferred into the kingdom of the son whom God loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The white witch doesn't give you redemption and forgiveness of sins. But Jesus does. With Jesus at the helm, there is no more tyrant. We're out underneath the the dominion of the cruel and wicked ruler. And now we are under the domain of a kind, loving, gracious, forgiving servant king. That by his self-sacrifice, we're told that that in in humbling himself to the point of death, uh, Philippians 2 says that God has exalted him to the high places. God has raised him up and put him on high, and so is Jesus on high. See what we could not achieve by our own, by our by our own sheer force, Jesus did for us. He came and he dealt with the dirty work of our sin. See, Jesus comes as God's servant. Now, all the stuff that I told you about doing, right? How we live in our identity as servant, if you just put your nose to the grindstone and you don't understand this, you are going to be depleted fast. See, in the gospel, we are servants because we have first and foremost been served by the king. When when, Paul is writing in Philippians, he says, "Keep Keep this in mind among you, Christ's humility, that he humbled himself. He became a servant. And in this way, the gospel keeps us from striving after selfish gain. See, in the gospel, we already have everything that we need, so we don't need the validation of other people. Right, we have the voice of the king that says, You are mine, I love you, I've adopted you, you're in my kingdom, you're part of my family now. That's all the validation you need. That's all the validation that you've been longing for. Right? So we don't need validation from others. See, to understand this about the gospel, that that Jesus was the servant king, it also frees us up from the mindset of I have to do this out of duty. Right? When we talk about servanthood, it's like, oh man, I gotta do this, I got this mission thing tonight. But if you remember the gospel, if you remember that Jesus left his throne in heaven to come and to serve you, that changes everything. It's not out of duty, it's out of delight now that you serve. See, it's as we serve, in light of being served in Christ, that the kingdom of God is ushered in, on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is what we're called into as God's family of missionary servants to participate with God in ushering the kingdom. Now we're gonna take part in the Lord's table and right here at the Lord's table is where heaven is breaking through. Right, this is where we say together as the church, I have no king but Jesus and this is my king that he would lay down his life for me, that he would shed his own blood, give up his own body so that I could be brought in. So today we don't, we don't come as consumers We come as a family of servants because that is what the gospel has made us. Let us celebrate together in the work of God. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the liberation that it brings, that we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into your glorious kingdom. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live for your kingdom, not our own, that you would give us hearts stirred with affection for Jesus as we come to this meal and celebrate his life, his death, his resurrection, that we have been baptized with Christ, that as we have gone down into the water, we've been raised with him. And as in serving and taking the lowly places that we are exalted with him, I pray, Father, you'd help us as a church to live in this identity for the good of our city and for the glory of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.